Welcome to Sport Talks with Sport Profs. We created this community for students and for industry to join together as a community and talk sports and really it just be what's going on, what is the future looking like, and have a little bit of fun. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Sport Talks with Sport Profs. I'm uh, Professor Joe Recupero, and I want to introduce the other profs here tonight. Uh, Co-host, Prof Karen Sebesta, Coach Dan Berlin, and uh, our guest tonight is Olivia Stomsky. Olivia is the director at Newhouse Sports Media Center, working for like 12 years at Pro Angel Media, an independent production house that uh, mainly does events for ESPN and Time Warner as a coordinating producer, producer and editor. She's also a graduate of Syracuse University in broadcast journalism. Um, so Olivia, just to begin with, I wanna hear about your journey from uh, being a student into the media industry and, and how you've kind of circled back and, and are also now part of the academic industry. Yeah, you know, everyone has their own path and the road that kind of leads them along the way. So um, I started working in the industry right out of college. I, I graduated from Newhouse um, and started my career at Fox Sports West in Los Angeles. And it progressed from there. I was at, at Fox Sports until 2008. Um, I had experience in, in live games, in studio production, promos, teases, on-air promotions. Um, and then from there, I really fell in love with storytelling, uh, looking at the long form, humanizing athletes and coaches, figuring out what made them tick. Um, but Newhouse always had a very special place in my heart. I always thought maybe when I retired, I'd come back here. Um, I would, I would love to teach one day. I didn't think I'd come back here at 37, but it was just a really the right time for me. One of my mentors had run the, the sports media center. He was retiring and I just thought, well, might I be interested in this? And it was an opportunity for me to stay in the industry. Uh, I am what they call a professor of practice. So I am still producing and directing anywhere from 85 to 90 games a year, um, primarily for ESPN. And, but I really wanted to give back. I had found in my career as an executive now that we hadn't really done our work in training those behind us. Um, it's a competitive industry, as, as you all know. Um, and so many of us had been told for so long, you know, there's someone right behind you that wants a job and it will do it, you know, for less money. And so you just full speed ahead. And then all of a sudden I became an executive producer and I'm, I'm looking for the next producer, the next AD, the next, and I just was finding fewer and fewer that I had confidence in. And, you know, you, you grow up with the same people going through the industry together. And we all kind of looked at each other and thought, this is probably our fault. And so when this position came up, I thought to myself, this is my chance to make a difference. Um, still be able to do what I love, stay in the industry, but to help train and teach those that will be the next generation was quite the honor. And especially at a place that I cared so much about. So I returned back to, um, we're not snowy right now. We usually say snowy Syracuse. We're not snowy yet. So uh, returned about three years ago and it's been great. Okay. 
Now, you didn't just start as an executive producer and you didn't just start producing and directing. So especially for a lot of the students that are on tonight and that will be listening to the podcast, can you sort of walk through those early days of your career and like, how do you get your foot in the industry? And what are those beginner jobs? And how do you get from those beginner jobs to the higher jobs? And how then do you walk in and be, a, you know, eventually a producer director? Because you know, nobody just walks out of out of school and, and works for ESPN as a producer director. Not any that I know of. Yes, uh, I'd love to. Uh, so yeah, you're exactly right. No one walks out of college and then sits in the chair as, as we in the industry call it, right? So it's just, it, that just doesn't happen. I started interning as a college student. Internships, 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 please. Everyone that is, is looking to get into the industry, find yourself an internship. Um, and when I started interning at Fox, I just kept coming back to the point where, you know, I remember producers looking at me saying like, what? You're still here. You don't have to come every day, but I just loved it. So winter break interned, worked for free summer, worked for free. Um, spring break, my friends went to Cabo. I went and worked for free. I drove two hours each way and I worked for free, which meant I had to waitress on the weekends and I had three jobs while I was in college because I had to figure this out. So that's really where I started. And I interned at Fox every chance that I possibly could. I just kept coming back. Um, and then when I graduated, I had a job. Now I was a production assistant, which meant I made a hundred dollars a day. I still drove two hours each way, which means I probably spent more money in gas than I was making each day, but it was actual, the fact that somebody was going to pay me to do this blew my mind. Um, and so that's really where it began. And when I got into the industry, there were very few women. And so I had to work twice as hard for half as much. And I was going to learn and be everything that I could so that they wouldn't send me home. And so I would listen and I would pay attention. So if I overheard someone say that they were looking for this job, I would look it up on the internet and I'd ask questions and could, is this something I could do? And then I'd say, Hey, can I volunteer to do that? And, and I want to learn how to do that. Um, my first real full-time job where I was making more than a hundred dollars a day was in, um, OAP, which is on-air promotions. We had an editor who, was overworked and he would sit and edit all day. And at six o'clock he would leave because of the famous, my wife will kill me if I don't get home line that, that this industry loves and I could never use. Um, and so when he would leave, I would sit down at his avid and I would practice and I would make mistakes and I would mess stuff up and restart. And the next morning he would see some of his work was done. And so I was helping him. So he would then help me. And I realized if I learned how to edit, that was just one more reason that they would want to keep me. And then if I, you know, knew how to AD, I was one more thing. Um, I'm not a huge numbers person, but I knew the Lakers needed a font coordinator. And I, could you imagine traveling on, like traveling with the Lakers for, yes. How do I learn how to do that? So I just studied every graphics possible. Um, I asked questions and volunteered for that job. Um, and so that really is where that kind of started for me. And then as I learned how to edit, I knew that that was going to help me to get to the next position. And I, you have to be your own advocate and you have to, you know, constantly say, what else can I do? But that's really where that trajectory happened. And it takes time and it takes proving yourself, you know, and it, and it, it takes 
going through it's the industry is just like any sports team when you're a rookie you're a rookie you got to carry the you know you got to carry the gear and deal with it but when it's your chance to shine hopefully you find yourself in the right spot and it's interesting you what you're really describing is you make yourself valuable and invaluable in so many ways uh we have to talk about the industry and you said fox sports west and so did you ever know a man named doug sellers i did so I, and I know some some people on this call won't know, but Doug Sellers was uh, uh, certainly an executive producer at CBC and a mentor to many people, including a mentor to me. So as we know, we worked with lots of men in this business and that really, there wasn't women to look to, to, to be inspired, maybe in finance or some other departments. But when you were actually talking production and making decisions and creative decisions on program content, it was a bunch of men. And... How did you sort of handle that? Did that ever come into your awareness? Did you have to respond differently? Did you even ever think about it? Because there's a lot of us that just sort of navigated it and it turned out okay. What what was your experience like that as a young woman? Well, first of all, I was raised by a single dad. So um, I don't know that at first it really, I, I grew up playing basketball and I played with boys. I grew up with a single dad. So I was around my dad and his friends all the time. Um, and so I don't know that I really went in going, oh, wait, no one around me looks like me in, in, in really that way. It wasn't long that I figured that out. Um, I was probably about 23 and I had heard that there was this mentorship program that you could sign up for within the industry. And I signed up and no one responded. And I, I called and no one responded. And then finally I, I started basically stalking because I had questions I needed somebody to answer. And um, one of those questions was, as I move up in the industry, what do I wear? Like, there was no one that could answer that question. And I finally got a call back and they said, we're sorry, we don't have anyone for you. There are no, there, there isn't anyone that can answer your questions. There's, there's no women in production in this, that is ahead of you that, that can answer your questions. Um, and so I started, obviously I noticed it, right? You can't, you can't not, there's, there's things that we have to think about that maybe otherwise we wouldn't, you know, what was I going to wear? How much did I have to spout off that I knew about sports versus being the know-it-all that, that talks too much about how much they know, right? And how am I being portrayed and how were there conversations and things being talked about, especially 20 years ago in the production offices that maybe they would stop talking about when I walked in or they wouldn't stop talking about. And I would have preferred that, that, you know, obviously those are things, but for me, I always saw it this way, Karen, is that nobody sent me an invitation to the party. I knew that I decided to come to this party and I decided that I was going to stay as long as I could prove to them that I was, you know, worthy of being there. And so for me, when there were things where I went, this is, I, I have to work harder, or this is uncomfortable, or this is, I could leave. I could do anything else that I wanted. This job was that great that there were things where I would go, okay, I have to process this one differently than maybe anyone else in the room does. That's okay. I chose this. And I hope that the industry, actually, I know it is a lot better now for a diverse group of people entering it, which is the hope that each time one of us is a good egg and a hard worker, then that just paves the way for 10 more. And I think you touched on something that many of us women in the business who are, you know, older than 30, 
say that uh, it exactly was that there were so many good things about the business and so many highs and so much adrenaline and so many great men who mentored and helped that if you did have a situation that wasn't so good, you could try to diffuse it. You could turn away from it, but you're right. Nobody was making you stay at the party and you kind of knew that. But now as you're older and more experienced and you have a position of power, like I do as an executive producer as well, do you sort of try to create a different environment now and be and see it? It's really, it can't be how it was. Yay for us that we survived, but those stories are gone and we want to create a different environment. And can you already see change in where, where you work? Oh, definitely. And the thing is, is look, I, I agree with you. Yes. Like we survived. But there's so many talented women that decided this fight just wasn't worth it for them, right? And that's understandable. I think it's a lot different. Um, and I will say that about six years ago, I got a call, did not know this person. And it was a female voice and, and she was a producer. She had produced a game with the crew that I usually work with. And she just called to say, thank you for having already done this. And, and I said, well, I'm not really sure what you're saying here. And she said, I could tell that this group had worked with a female producer because no one questioned me. Everyone was like right to it, like anything else. And I, I had to ask them, had you worked with, and they all explained that they were a part of your crew. And that moment I thought, okay, like, I, I don't know that I could have been prouder, right? I'm not, I don't see myself as any kind of a maverick or any kind of, a, you know, I'm just do every, whatever it is that every day. And the fact that there was someone who benefited directly from that made me feel proud of where our industry is going. Um, I look at the students and, and I say this a lot. I cannot control who has been successful in our industry in the past. I can't but I can control who will be successful, at least a little bit in my tiny bit of the world. And when you look at our student body and you see people of color and you see females and you see the, the diversity that should be reflected, there's nothing that makes me prouder. And that's the things that, that we need to concentrate on and making those changes as we get further on in our careers. As you said, now that you and I actually have the power to say and do anything, Imagine that if you would have asked me that at 20, I would have been like, oh, probably not. But now then it's up to us to make those changes that we really wish there would have been maybe back then. And yes, those conversations are changing. Those I get caught sometimes too. I think so much needed to change, but every now and then I come from an era where we could tell a dirty joke Oh yeah, and, <laughs> you know, <laughs> maybe say things that sometimes weren't appropriate because if the guys dished it out, sometimes I could dish it right back and I share that with everyone here because it was certain fun. And then I realized, well, wait a minute, I can't say certain things either. I wanted to ask you one more thing when we talk, before we started to talk about academics and school, but in the industry, I'm talking to young women all the time about, you know, what I call having your cake and eating it too. Don't be afraid of being in the business, working hard, shift work, travel. Look at, I'm married. I've been married to a man who works in television for 30 years. I have two kids. I mean, I could do it, but... If you thought it doesn't come with sacrifice, if it doesn't come with tough decisions, how many Christmases and holidays have I missed? So, I mean, what do you tell the young women that you can see the potential, they'd be great in production, but they're scared about the life. Yeah. But what do you say to them that, you know, listen, it's not so bad. Here's what's great about it. Or what kind of advice do you give young women um, and men really to encourage them? Because a lot of men, I work with a lot of men 
that like in your day, then they used this excuse, my wife will kill me if I don't get home. Now I get the excuses like, oh, your kids are grown up. I got to go and pick my daughter up and take her swimming. Can you hold the fort, Karen? And I'm like, wow, I couldn't make those excuses 20 years ago. And now I, I can't do it either. But anyway, some of your advice to women in the industry today. And you know, I do when students ask me, like, how do you handle the, the personal life work balance? It's not easy. It's not now it's, it's helpful if your your partner also works in television because they get it or they also work in sports because they get it. That doesn't always happen. Right. And I think in some cases it's more difficult because so many of the men that I work with or have worked with their wives don't work their wives are stay at home moms and there's right. Um, whereas there's fewer that that happens with with fathers and, and husbands. It happens, which is great if you can also hit that jackpot. Um, but the, what do I tell them? Well, a couple of things. The first thing that, that I want, especially the, the women that are here to understand, please understand that there is not a finite number of positions available for women in this industry. We can all be successful. We have to support each other to be successful, not see each other as threats. There are not a finite number, okay? So because Sarah gets a job does, and you don't, they were looking for Sarah. That's not, you didn't get it. That means let's celebrate that Sarah got it, right? And so that's that's the first thing. Because I think that if, if we all move in the same direction and we all are pushing each other in the same direction, then that's how change happens. And that's how change happens across the board with really anything. So that's my first thing. My second thing is looking at, can you have your cake and eat it too? You can do whatever you want. It comes down to priorities and it comes down to making sure that you are your own advocate. It comes down to making sure that you prioritize and value yourself and what you want out of life. And that's difficult when we're young, whether we're men or women, we have no idea what our, our worth is or you know how to be our own advocates or how to really make any decisions at all. No offense, but at least I didn't at that age. I think as you start getting older, you think, oh, wait, this is okay for me to say, you know what, I have to go home too. Or, you know, yeah, your wife might yell at you when you get home, but but that doesn't mean my, you know, husband or my wife isn't going to yell at me too and wants to spend time with me. But we don't, we're not always taught that. We're not always raised that way to say, you count too. And so for me, I tell my students, both male and female, if your priority is to be successful in this industry and have a family, do it. You'll find a way. You just need to over-communicate and know what your priorities are. If it's to do whatever it is, you can do it. It's just a matter of saying, well, look, I'm going to miss some holidays. That's going to happen. I missed one of my closest friend's weddings. I had a big show. I just, she understands this is who I am, but I'll make sure that when I have time during the summer, She's first on my list for happy hour at least twice, right? So that you gotta you gotta take a give along the way, but you can you can do it. Um, it's just valuing yourself and, and what you want, and that's okay. It's okay to to be your own advocate. Good, um, Olivia. And when you talk about being an advocate, we have a question um, from one of our students from Stetson who wants to ask um, about internships in a COVID pandemic era and how can students best advocate? I'm going to turn over to Stetson and he can ask you what he was wanting to know. Hey, Olivia, Stetson here. Uh, pleasure to meet you and thank you for taking the time to do this for us. So my question for you is, so you talked about how internships were, were pretty crucial and you know how you're kind of 
historic rise per se, if you will. So how do you recommend students trying to get internships at a pandemic handle that situation when on-site crews have been reduced to, you know, just quite literally only essential people? Like are places adapting in some sort of virtual environment or are internships something that companies like aren't even thinking about right now? Yeah, a lot of companies and networks are already starting with virtual interns. So I will say this, think about your internship as a long interview. And I also like to say, and, and I, I, I'll say this for a mixed crowd, think about your internships the way you would relationships, okay? So if you intern for winter break, that might be six weeks. Think about how much you really remember someone you dated for six weeks versus someone you dated for four months, five months, right? So I always say, if, if you're thinking about a winter um, internship, not a bad idea, but you want to go for the longer haul. Now, being remote is difficult, right? Because how do I get noticed? How am I, do I, and it all comes down to being a self-starter. It all comes down to over-communicating with people and understanding what their needs are, understanding how you can help, and then always finding a way to do a little bit extra. But I know for a fact that NFL is doing their um, internships remotely. Several uh, local stations are doing theirs remotely as well. ESPN is looking to do theirs um, for the spring remotely. Um, and it's just a matter of having access to different, um, you know, clouds for footage, being able to edit stuff, be a self-starter. You got to lock in those times, not get distracted during that time. I am a terrible work at home person. So I will like do laundry and like make lunch. And that's why I'm in my office right now because I needed to like focus, but there's all kinds of internship opportunities that are happening remotely. Also a lot are happening remotely when it comes to writing. So if you look at different websites, like the athletic is doing an internship remotely and it's a matter of figuring out what you really can do with where you are. And I will say this, Seton, see these, these limitations as opportunities. Because think about it, how often would you have an opportunity to intern somewhere maybe in a different state or a different country doing, you wouldn't if you had to be there, live there, spend the money for the rent and that, right? But now that it's virtual, it becomes a possibility for you. And it becomes an option and an opportunity that you really can learn from and be a part of because it doesn't matter where you are. And so I think that that's the important part. I think that that looking at internships and a casting a wider net is really important because now they're now they're possible when before when you would have had to move to Chicago or move to you don't have to worry about doing that and going along those lines about uh, education Olivia I wanted to ask you and your role at Syracuse because we're seeing this here and I'm wondering how you're handling it so how is the pandemic affecting you at school especially in programs like sports broadcasting I'm not sure exactly what you're doing, but we're basically online, virtual, you know, emergency remote teaching. We went into the emergency in March and we haven't really come out of it. So, you know, we're still going to be online in, in the winter and, and fingers crossed everything will, will return next fall on campus. I can't promise that though. I'm not saying that. That's what I'm hoping. But so where are you guys at with um, Syracuse? So we were in person. Um, we taught hybrid classes, which meant some people would be online and some people were, would be in person during the, the fall. But there are still limitations when we're looking at sports, right? There's still limitations, um, you know, say sports reporting or um, sports play by play. There's limitations. How are we dealing with it? With a lot of favors. 
So I have reached out to a lot of producer friends for games with a clean feed. So I have a lot of friends that are work on the Dodgers crew. So during the World Series, after every game, they would send me the full game with graphics, everything, but without the announcers. And so that was helpful for me. We got the tennis match with Serena and Venus with not, no, no sound on it. So this is giving us an archive of games and events for our students to get practice calling for that play by play. You know, we have to get, we have to get creative. I teach sports production and a part of that sports production class is live events. Well, it's a little bit difficult to teach a live event production when half my students are virtual. I can't put an extra 22 people in a production truck. I can't bring them into control room. So we created events for them to do live production, um, which was a fun thing for our class. We did tic-tac-toe, we did cornhole, we did rock, paper, scissors, um, we did um, paper football. So these are things that they're able to figure out what, what are the parts and elements that are they're normal. We had an open with an on-camera, you have to have replays, graphics, storylines, post-game interviews, halftime. Um, and so it's getting creative. It's trying to figure out how can I teach these tools that are going to be exactly the same, but in a not close to even possible same reality and environment. Um, we have, we've really utilized a Zoom. We've utilized shared drives for footage. Um, we're putting sound bites in drives for classes so that we're able to write wraps around them. Um, but it just, it really takes a village for us to figure that out. And luckily the industry is small enough and I have a, a big enough community that we've been able to really pull quite a few games for our archives for our students to access. Now, you raise a good point about it's the community is small and you're talking about the states. Yes. So when we talk to the students about Canada, it's a, we're even a much smaller pond. So always we're saying don't burn bridges, right? You wanna be friends with everybody, you wanna get along and that's right. Um, we have a couple more uh, questions from students. I'm going to go back to Stetson first. He has a follow-up from his earlier question. And then after that, we're going to Alyssa. Hello again. Hi. So, with virtual, not really allowing people to, you know, maybe not like prop not properly meet and properly understand one another. What can I do differently or, or students in general to differentiate themselves and, and get an exec to say, you know, I want that person. Like what's going to make us stick out in a virtual setting? rather than just them seeing us as another media major student from Canada? So th there's a couple of things. One, please understand that people are always taking cues from you at all times, always. So that goes down to what your background is like. It goes down to what you're wearing. It goes down to how much you're talking. It goes down to, are you looking off to the side and possibly shopping for shoes? It goes down to how much are you excited about what we're talking about? Do I notice that you're engaged? Do I notice that you're shaking your head, taking notes, something to the effect? These are all little things that people don't even realize that we pay attention to, but we do. And we pay attention to them in person, first of all. So if we didn't realize that one, if I have a student who shows up in their pajamas every day, when I get a call saying, hey, will you recommend, you know, Olivia for this job, I'll say, yeah, she's great, but she's probably going to wear jammies to, to work. Are you cool with that? Because that's, I don't know that the girl knows how to put, you know, shoes with laces on. So these are the things that I think really help you. Also, do your homework. This is how you could impress anyone. 
what do they do? What network is it? What, what shows are they known for? What do you think maybe they could do better? Who's on their air? Um, who used to be? And maybe went somewhere else in, in a bigger market. Um, what teams do they have? What does their brand seem to be? We have cultures at different at different networks. So I work for both Fox and ESPN, primarily ESPN, but they're completely different cultures. That means different way to deal with promos, different sound effects, different music, different elements. So I know when I produce a, a Fox game, my brain has to change and be a part of Fox culture. Whereas ESPN may be difficult, well, is different in a lot of ways, what they expect us to talk about, the storylines, those kind of things. But I that takes research and knowing what, to expect from them, right? So how do you stand out? One, dress appropriately, make sure your background makes sense. Don't be lying in bed, don't be eating, don't be paying attention to something else. And then have something worth offering to offer. What is it that, why do you wanna be there? Everybody wants to know if, wants you to want to be here. That's what it comes down to. You could be a seven at your job, but be positive and want to be there and driven and a self-starter. And I'll take you over a nine who's kind of a, right, not great to hang out with. And what, so that's, that's always going to be the test. It's be excited about what they're doing, show interest and be dependable. And remember, people are taking cues all the time. So no matter what it is, that's something that like, yeah, we understand sometimes, you know, there's, everyone makes a mistake or you might be, but those are the ways that I would say you definitely will separate yourself from everybody else and the other candidates for sure. And Olivia, just to jump in. And so Stetson hears this because in this country, we have sort of three major networks, the CBC, the Canadian Broadcasting Company, which is not a private, it's our you know national broadcaster, but we do sports, we do Olympic sports. That's where I work. And then TSN is very much, uh, you know, hockey, basketball culture and then Sportsnet has baseball. And so Stetson that's lots of kids come to me and say, oh, I want to work in sports. And then I'm like, well, do you want to work at CBC? Because we do Olympic sports, high performance sport. We don't do professional. If you want to do auto racing, do you know what network to go to Stetson in this country? If you love auto racing? Geez, auto racing, like. Yeah, you want to work in auto racing, NASCAR. You want to, you know which network in this country you go to? Uh... PSN, I'm not going to put you on the spot, but this is what Olivia is saying that, you know, do some research on the company or you want to work for a sport federation, a professional organization, because you're passionate about basketball. Do you have to work for Maple Leaf Sports and Entertainment? Or what about going for the Raptors 905? Or what about going for the CEBL? I produced basketball this summer. So, you know, court sports are on all networks. So again, I think Olivia, you say something really important that young people don't do enough research on where they're applying. There's like, I want to work somewhere. Is What can I do? And it's like, well, you tell me what you can do for me. And then I'll start the conversation. <laughs> and, and as a sidebar too, then I'll throw it back. Um, Olivia, I teach TV lab and production and live sport. And we've been doing all that too. Zooms and uh, different technologies. And I keep telling young people, you will have a gift because some of these technologies are never going away. And we'll come back to that later in the conversation. But uh, people are learning some really cool things right now. Back to Joe and questions. Uh, over to Alyssa now, because she has been waiting to ask a question. Hi, Ms. Somsky. I'm Alyssa. Um, I'm in my second year at, 
in sport media. I'm actually from the States too. So originally like my plan was go to Canada, get my sport media degree, come back and work in the States and do um, sports broadcasting, anything sports. So right now I'm kind of at a point where I'm like kind of questioning um, my path because I am passionate about sports and I'm passionate about the process and everything that goes into it. And I love all my classes. But the thing is, I'm passionate about other things too. And I was just wondering, when did you know that you were going to pursue sports as your career? And did you ever question it? Yeah, I thought lots of, a lot of times did I question it. When did I know that I was passionate about sports? I think it was pretty early on. When I was about seven years old, I met a woman named Leah Wilcox. And if that name does not ring a bell, it's understandable. She's one of the vice presidents of the NBA. She wasn't then. Um, and I remember she said that she had worked at the NBA and my mind was blown. I, and I, I actually said, girls can be in the NBA. And she said, actually, I bossed them around. And I said, I want your job. Cause I was a bossy, I was a bossy kid. Um, and, and really right then I was like, what is it called? And she said, a sports producer. And I was like, rest of my life, I'm going to be a sports producer. Um, but when was it that, that I really realized it, you know, I think that for me, I would watch, I grew up, as I said, I grew up with a single dad and I would watch my dad stress about normal things, paying bills, what he was going to do with this girl on the other side of the table who had like, you know, girl things. And he, you know, like I would come home and cry. My dad would be like, I, I don't. Yeah. But all of these things, right. Are tough. And I would watch him sit down in front of a Lakers game or um, you know, a Padres game or darts, if you, if that was what was on. And it was the moment where he, he really wasn't worried about any of those things. And I say to my students all the time, I've, I understand that this is a romantic idea, but if you take someone who is homeless and someone who works on wall street and you put them in front of a TV for three hours during that giants game, they're the same. They belong to the same family. They yell at the same things. They have the same hopes. They're not worried about, right? And we get to, we get to bring that to people. Um, you know, I, I unfortunately lost my dad six years ago. And the last conversation I had with him, I asked him how his doctor's appointment was. And he said, I don't know. And I said, well, what do you mean you don't know? And he goes, did you ask me about the Dodgers? What did you hear about the Dodgers? What's happening? And I said, dad, I said, the doctor's. And he was like, oh, it was fine. What did you hear about the Dodgers? And, and he was more concerned with Kobe Bryant finding his, his shot than he was with what was going on, right? And, and we get to bring that to people. And that's really important to me. And I, I started seeing, for me, I, I, I was always a pleaser as a kid. I wanted to make people happy. And I saw sports make people happy. I saw people be able to yell at each other at the top of their lungs, but be best of friends because it was like the dumbest conversation about, right? I wanted to do that. And I just, I wasn't sure how exactly, but I wanted to do something that mattered and brought people joy. And in my upbringing, that's what brought joy in my house was sports. And so, you know, that's really where I, I thought I got, I've got to be a part of that in some way. Um, and then as I got on in my career, I really see it on the other side as well. You know, you, you get to cover sports for athletes that may never play the game again. You know, I produce college, uh, college sports and, and I produce the women's final four. And there were women in that game that will never pick up a basketball again and, and a sport that they loved and they played their entire lives. And we get to document that for them. 
This is what they're going to show their grandchildren. This is important. We have a pulpit to tell their stories. And that's important to me. Um, you know, I've worked on the Special Olympics. I think you could probably see one of my Emmys back here somewhere. One of those is for a show I did on the Special Olympics. And having the opportunity to tell these athletes and their parents' stories is a really big deal to me. That that inspires people. So, you know, look, I, I say it if you if you only kind of like sports, then like sports and do something else. But if you if you love what sports stands for, if you love, you know, what it makes you feel, then this is the industry for you. And that's different. Um, I don't know that I'm as big of a fan as I was growing up because it's, it's what I do, but I still love it. I still, I, mean, I don't care who's playing it's on. If it, if I turn my computer this way, you'd see that the football game is sitting is on over here. We got Monday night football in, in the U S right now. Um, so that's kind of a long story as to answer your question, but I probably learned that I wanted to do this pretty early on in my undergrad in, in just watching the effects that sports had on other people and wanting to be a part of that. So Olivia, um, going back to your role at Syracuse, you know, do you think students are looking for more demanding practical courses and hands-on experiences to deal with this post-pandemic, with the eventual post-pandemic world as, you know, as we're seeing job availability currently is limited. I mean, I really believe that this pandemic is upending everything, not just TV and not just sports, but every business. And I think we all have to know that. So it's about how are we coming out of this and what kinds of things, you know, especially in education, we have to look at this ahead and go, what are the skills and the knowledge that students are going to need going forward? So what do you think it is? And again, maybe you can talk a little bit about your role as professor of practice, because that is a bit different in terms of our system here. So, so let's start there. So professor of practice means that you're still actively, actively working in the industry. Now, one of the things when I, when I took over as the director of the Newhouse Sports Media Center that was really important to me was that all of the professors that teach sports classes are still working within the industry. It's an ever-changing industry. We need to know what and be able to teach our students what's happening right now, right? Um, not the way things you technology changes so fast. We went from you know linear editing to non-linear to we were all avid and then we were final cut and then we went back to avid and then we were kind of premiere and we all did it at the same time and we were a beta and then we were SX and then we went to DVC Pro and now we don't do tape at all and right. So all of those things, those are just the technical parts that, that those things are really, really important. So being a professor of practice, I am still in the industry, I'm still producing and it helps our students in several ways. One, I'm teaching what's happening right now. So I'll produce a college football game on Saturday and I have class on Monday and my students will say, hey, uh, did you miss a break in the second half of the football game? And I'll, yeah, I did, don't, uh, this happened. Or why did you run that graphic here? Or um, where'd you find this information? So that's really great. Also, because we're still in the industry, our connections are fresh. So these are my friends. Hey, did you hear that there's an opening position? Or um, last, you know, Saturday I produced the game for Fox and I had to have some students that are still in the area and there we had open positions. And I said, hey, why don't you come on down to the truck and, and I'll put you to work. So I had a student who was our associate director. I had a student who was our font coordinator. Um, I had a student who was our stage manager because I'm in a position to be able to say, yes, I vouch for these students and they'll do a great job and they did. And now they have been a part of a big production that we've been able to do. So 
those are all great things. Are they hungry for hands-on? Yes, they, they definitely are. And I think that's why a lot of our students stick around during winter break because they think, Hey, maybe something will happen. If, if professor Somsey is producing, maybe she'll get us in somehow we want to do something. We're very much a hands-on university. Um, and there's less of that obviously. And so they're hungry for that. And it's just trying to figure out how we can keep them engaged, how we can teach them these lessons. Um, and yeah, I think there's some changes that are happening that will stick with us. I hope not all of them. Um, as a producer, I've, I'm fearful of our idea of production value and it remaining at a place that's not awesome. I hope those changes don't stick. But look, I mean, how we produce and where we are located and how many people are in a truck, those things aren't going to change. I mean, that now you can't unknow something. And so now jamming 25 people into a tin can just doesn't seem responsible in any way, shape or form. So there will be changes that will happen, but you know, it's a matter of figuring out how we can get those hands-on experiences for our students. Um, we have shipped out some at-home um, production gear for our students to call games for the ACC network while we're on break, they'll be doing them from home. So they're still getting that experience. Is it the same? No. Is it as close as we can get? It is. Um, so there's all kinds of ways that, that we're seeing our students trying to find that engagement and that hands-on experience. Alyssa, you were saying about, you're not enough, you're passionate. I, you should know that my hobbies are decorating and home renovation and all sorts of things. And you can be passionate about lots of things. And one thing I think, Olivia, you touched on it, what people in this business are, whether it's sports, entertainment, or news. I started at TSN, then I went to news, I went to entertainment, back in sports, it's storytelling. And you, you touched on that a lot. It's about people and telling stories. And I want to hear what you think about with the stuff we've done with the Zoom calls and the digital world now and Instagram reels and uh, Twitter and StreamYard and Twitch. And I can go on and on the amount of platforms that people can be creative and have productions. I think it's revolutionizing the business world. And there'll be so much more jobs. When you and I went to school, you had to work in a network you know, or you had to work at a, if you were regional, there just wasn't the opportunities. What do you say to how you see the business now? You're exactly right. I mean, when, when I got into the industry, there was really one game in town. If you, if you worked in LA and you wanted to work in sports, you worked at Fox sports. That was it. Who was your competition? ESPN, which was silly because the two are very, very different in general, but that was it. And then slowly, you know, you might get a spectrum and then we got pac 12 network and now the longhorn network. And now that now we're talking about, you know, people having their own YouTube channel and, and building their brand, you know, during the pandemic, one of the, I was, I was interviewed by a, a writer and he had asked me, what do I, what, how, what changes have I seen since the pandemic with the stoppage of sports? And the one thing that I, I really, really love is there has definitely been an increase in the consumption and also the desire for those stories, right? How many of us sat down and watched the last dance? Like it was like water in a, in a desert. And it was, it was like, I was just like, I couldn't decide, did I want to record them all and pinch it? Or did I have to wait? And then what was I going to do? And so I did both kind of, because it was, I was just like, thirsty. And so then we started seeing more and more, right? And we were watching even in even 30 for 30s that weren't that good. We won't name which ones, right? And then it was like, what other stories can we can we really consume? Who are these athletes? What happened to them? You know, I, I watched the full Oscar Pastores. I watched the the Armstrong, which was not likable, but but interesting, right? So there's all kinds of things, but 
now I'm finding more and more students and we, we teach sports documentary here. And I would say before the pandemic, the class filled our registration open today and the class is not only full, but it has a wait list. And it's because we're starting to see people, especially our students, more and more interested in finding those stories, telling those stories, um, learning more about who people are. At ESPN, we say humanize, then analyze. And that's really, really cool to me because I love storytelling and, and it's part of every bit that we do. Um, but that's not, that's not a bad side effect of, of all of this, in my opinion. I want to pick up on something there, Olivia. Um, next is Dan Berlin. He's going to come up with his uh, weekly rapid fire. But just when you said that, I've thought of one more question I want to ask before we toss it to Dan, because um, I love how you're talking about sports documentary and how you're saying that you're, the class now is a wait list here. So I do teach a sport doc class here in sport media. and But my background is also live television. And I was teaching in TV labs as well. I've always liked both styles of that, the live television and the single camera, long form, you know, work on a story for a long time kind of thing. And actually earlier tonight, I was talking to our program advisory committee, which is people from the industries, people, some people that Karen works with and, and other people that uh, from our faculty are also on there. Um, but anyways, they were talking about that the big thing is that students are going to have to be what for lack of a better, jack of all trades that's what i always say it's okay you're saying jack of all trades uh, really and um because it used to be about specialization and because i can even remember and i brought it up to one of the people i said i can remember when way back at cbc sports i used to be asked what do you really want to do do you want to be a live producer or do you want to be a doc producer because i was doing both and it was literally like thrown at me as if it was an ultimatum like i had to make a decision between one or the other that they were two completely different streams. And this is 20 years ago. So like, so now to me, it's shown how much has changed is that you do need to be a storyteller no matter where you are. But I think both of those areas and those skills really help you. And so can you talk a little bit about that, about like, there's a, there's, isn't so much of this division anymore. Like you're, oh, you're a technician or you're production or you're live or you're long form. Like those, all those jobs and all those genres are melding now. Yeah, I mean, not only are they they melding, but storytelling is going to be woven through everything that you do. You know, I send out a, a full storylines list for every live game that I do because, and then how am I going to support it? And how are we going to tell that story? Does that mean that there's footage that needs to be a part of that? Does that mean that there's a graphic that's a part of that? Are we just going to talk about it? Is there shots that I need to get to make sure that we tell those stories? So you know, storytelling is going to be a part of everything. Now, there are skills that are different producing a live game as skills different than interviewing and editing and, and, and the long form. But in general, so much of that is melded together. And what I think we have to understand is our careers in general are not going to always be linear. Like I said, I started in studio, then I went into live, then I went into teases and, and on-air promotions. I then went back and did more long form, which was hour long storytelling shows. And then just as my career kind of changed, I did miss that, you know, three, two, one, and you're on. And, you know, I missed that adrenaline of hearing, do they hear us and see us? We're good, right? And that moment of like, all right, boys, let's have a good show kind of feeling. And that was important to me. And so then my, my career kind of went back to live. Um, I find that I enjoy teaching long form more because that's really where my heart is. But 
it's, it, it's all kind of, it, it does. You have to be able to, to put your foot in lots of different pools to make sure that you have the well-rounded experience and you never know when your, your name will be called in those different areas. And so you need to be ready for it. Yeah. Okay. Now I want to uh, toss it over to the coach, Dan Berlin. Uh, we have a, a weekly segment that Dan hosts there about rapid fire. So take it away, Dan. I think I'm nervous now. Well, I like it. You should be on pins and needles, right? It's all, it's all coming fast and furious. Thanks, Joe, for the introduction. And Olivia, it is a pleasure. I, uh, I was biding my time, so I'm glad to have this opportunity. I'll be coming at you with some questions. Do your best to answer them as briefly as you can, although sometimes you can go a little longer as you see fit. Um, I guess in the proverbial sports vernacular, we'll call these softballs, okay? So don't be too, too worried. There might be an odd curveball in there, but for the most part, down the middle, ready to be hit out of the park. Okay, you ready to get started? I'm ready. All right, here we go. So of course we know that you graduated from Syracuse uh, back in 2001 with a, grad, with a degree rather in broadcast journalism. My question is a sports fan to another Syracuse sports fan, who was your favorite orange athlete during your time in undergrad? My favorite orange athlete during my time in undergrad would have to have been a Ton Thomas. I love that answer. You know, I got to see Donovan McNabb play in the 1999 Orange Bowl down in Miami the last year that stadium existed. Unfortunately, they lost to Florida, but I digress. I have a three-part question for you. Describe yourself in one word at home. One word at home, quiet. In the classroom. Very loud. Oh, one word, loud. In the truck. Oh, fun. Hey, tell me about the favorite game or what was the favorite game you ever have covered in a truck? Well, I'm going to, can I spin it a little and say the favorite thing I ever produced? Spin it away. Okay. Um, I had the opportunity to produce the unveiling of the Kareem Abdul-Jabbar statue in front of Staples Center, which meant I was sitting in a room and producing and directing some of the NBA's greats. And when I had um, Dr. J actually like know my name and I was like, I made it. Like, I just remember thinking, God, I really hope my facial filter is kicking in right now because I am like this, this moment right now. Now I've known Magic Johnson most of my life. So he, he was helpful in like, you know, introducing me to people, but that had to have been the most exciting thing as an NBA fan I could have ever been a part of. And when that was over and, you know, Dr. J and, and um, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, who one of my favorites was like, thanks Liv. I was like, Whoa. I'd have gone to heaven yeah, right there, huh? I'm cool because right now I don't feel it. <laughs> I've been my best one. Hey, that's incredible. Um, hey, you talk about your love for long form. Tell us about the your favorite long form story you've ever been a part of and why. Favorite long form story I've ever been a part of was a show that I worked with um, on Special Olympics. I'll try not to get emotional. Unfortunately, we recently lost Rafer Johnson. Uh, Rafer Johnson, if you don't know who he is, do your homework, look him up, quite an inspiration. Uh, to me, was a very, very close friend. And in working with the Special Olympics, I got to be um, very close with him, learning about the changes that he made, not only in sport, but in so many of our lives that we don't realize. And it was really fun to be able to tell his story. He was asked by Eunice Kennedy Driver to be one of the founders of Special Olympics Southern California. By far, that was probably my favorite story to tell. Um, the way he just loved those athletes and the life that he led was truly inspiring. 
you know, that was perfect segue because thank you for sharing that about your time working with the Special Olympics. So my question is, what has that experience taught you? You know, um, one of the times I, I had an interview with uh, Maria Shriver, who is Eunice Kennedy Shriver's daughter and, and a, a reporter in her own right. And she said that one of the things being a Kennedy meant was having the pulpit and using it for good. And the Special Olympics really taught me about the amazing stories out there that would otherwise not get to be told if we didn't do our jobs. And it taught me how to listen. It taught me how to really pay attention to the responsibility we have as journalists, as producers. Um, and I, I can't help but think of my own father in each of those parents, right? If, if my dad was very quiet, but if you asked him about me, you'd wish you hadn't because he wouldn't shut up for hours. And I think this is the these parents opportunity to do that, to um, really validate their hard work, their love and their pride and their, their athlete that they have. And, and these athletes work their butts off and they should be celebrated. And they um, have wonderful abilities. Um, we have, I have a, um, an intern here that is a part of, of that community. And so um, I learned a lot about the responsibility we have when we have the opportunity to tell someone else's story and what a gift that is and the responsibility that is. Um, and so it, it's, it's a really fun part of what we get to do. Yeah, the fun part of the rapid fire is hearing such a beautiful, eloquent answer like that, because it is about giving back and using your position for, for a greater good and having those opportunities. So thank you for sharing that. Two quick questions left for you. Five words or less. What is the most rewarding part for you about being a teacher? The text message when I get a job. I just love it. When I get that text message from students that say, I know you told me I could do it. And finally I did. I have not grown tired of that at all. So 100%, that's the moment, um, especially when you know what they've been through and they've worked so hard and they've cried in your office and then they finally get that first yes. There's nothing like it. And finally, personally, what will be your greatest takeaway from 2020, a year like no other? You know, maybe it's, it's slowing down and making connections. I tend to move fast. I travel a lot. I'm busy. I just kind of full steam ahead. And sometimes um, it takes being forced to slow down for you to really make those connections and, and you know, um, put your feet on the ground at the same time, which is a new thing for me. Neither of my feet are on the ground at the same time ever. And during this time, I've been able to do that. Um, and I think that, that that's actually been a blessing for me to be able to spend time with the people around me and, and slow my brain down and say, what else could I be doing that during this time? Um, so I think that's probably my biggest takeaway. What a great way to wrap up a rapid fire with the understanding that, hey, it's okay to go slow sometimes too. Okay, yeah. Okay. Olivia, thank you so much. Beautifully said and spoken. Uh, Joe, back to you. Thanks, Dan. We have a couple of questions uh, before we sign off, Olivia. So a couple more from our students. Um, I'm going to again throw to Stetson. He's got a question. And then after that, Matthew has a follow-up question after Stetson. Sorry, you can't get rid of me, but uh, I'm no, back. No, I think we're, we're like friends now. Let's like, like keep going. <laughs> we go way back. Yeah. Uh, does Syracuse offer any grad programs that are specific to the sport media industry? Because I think, you know, the, the thought of, I don't want to say a wasted year, but, you know, online was definitely something, it was a different year. And now, you know, we're not sure what's going to be happening with third year and fourth year. And 
uh, that's two years and it's it, then my university is done. So I'm definitely, you know, kind of exploring grad programs. So I'm curious, does Syracuse offer any that you recommend? Yeah, so Syracuse um, Newhouse has a grad program. And the way our grad program works is that you would do your grad program in TRF, which is television, radio, film, that's production. Okay. BDJ, which is going to be your performance reporting in front of your camera. MNO, which is going to be your magazine, newspaper, and online writing. Um, we have PR as well. And so marketing and advertising. Once you take those programs, you can take a sports media and communication track, which means you have your program and then you specialize in sports media. So you would take those sports media and communication classes, whether it be sports documentary, play-by-play, production. Um, I could keep going. We don't have time for those. But um, And then you also would have an outside um, source, your internships. We help you get you. We have the ACC Network here on campus. We're the only university in the U.S. to have live studio shows on ESPN, um, completely student-run. Um, so yes, we do, but you would take it in whatever it is you're interested in and specialize in sports. Awesome. Thank you so much, Olivia. Appreciate it. And if you're interested in applying, just reach out to me. I'll help you through it once it's time for you to get there. Absolutely. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. Okay, Matthew. Yeah, my question was actually very similar about the grad program. I've always been really interested in Syracuse from like the alumni that I follow, like Bob Costas, Mike Tirico, Beth Mowens. There's so many people who have came out of Syracuse in front of the camera and behind the scenes. It's always something I've been really um, interested in. And about the grad program, the like masters in broadcast and digital journalism, what would you look for in a student uh, coming out of Canada? Is it work experience? Is it high grades? Or what advice would you offer to a student from Canada or anywhere that wants to uh, get into that master's program at Newhouse? So I have had uh, several grad students coming from Canada um, in our program. And so I can't tell you grades don't matter. They do. But what matters more to us is a couple things. One, being a good writer, being a solid writer at the backbone of everything you do, whether it's production, being on air, whatever PR, it all comes down to being a solid writer. So there is a big writing part of our um, application process. But what we're really looking for is we're looking for students that are excited about the industry, that are well-rounded. Did you just go to school and go to classes and then go home and play video games? Or did you actually do something? Where Did you have internships? Did you have a, a job? Did you volunteer? Um, were you involved with on-campus stuff? Those are the things that we are always looking for. And so I would say, you know, if you've got some time, spend that time. I'm not, as a professor, not going to say, don't worry about grades. I'm not going to say that. Don't worry, professors in the room. Mm -hmm. grades, do, grades do matter. But what matters more, in my opinion, is who you are, how excited you are about the industry, and what you want to do as far as your dedication level moving forward. Um, so those are the things we're looking for. Thanks so much, Olivia. Right. You've really uh, given the, the students and all of us food for thought tonight. It's been a fantastic conversation with you. I knew you were, we had to get you on Sport Talks when we talked a few weeks ago after the introduction from Barb Jones, who myself and Karen went to school with in RTA many, many moons ago, right? So, uh, well, go, you know, it's a small world, a small industry, and we're now starting to see even between our, you know, schools across the borders as well. I know this won't be the last we'll be talking to you, but thanks again from all of us, from Coach Dan Berlin, from Prof. Sebesta, from Chelsea Bernhout, who's He's here on the call and as our exec producer sets everything up for us and myself and all the students, thanks again for taking the time to talk to us, Olivia. We really, really enjoyed it. Thank you.
Thank you so much. It was an absolute pleasure. Please feel free to give my email to anyone if I can help you in the future. And um, I'm sure you and I'll keep in touch. Stay safe, everyone. Oh, yes, we will. We will. Thanks. Thanks, Thanks Olivia. Good night. Good night.